How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Star Show Podcast, episode 229. I'm very excited, Zeke. Yes, we're, why? We're, we're back in the present day. We just we spent are. 10 weeks. It was like going back to the in, future, and here we are. I know. We're all back. Exactly. <laughs> going for all the decades, but now we're back in the 2020s. It feels nice. It does. It does indeed. How are you, Jake? Now I'm, that you're back in the present day. I'm good. Um... Had a bit of a day off today, which was nice. Mm, happy WA day. Yes, happy WA day. Um, I think I guess we both had some lazy days today, which oh, is good. It was great. It was great. <laughs> Entering week seven of the term, and mm. boy, needed a weekend off. I tell you, that was a. But so close, so close to the mid, the midpoint. The mid, the midpoint twist. It's report of the year. time. It's report. <laughs> it's a busy time of year. You know, Zig. Will there be a midpoint twist in like? This season of the television show that is the Zeke show? I hope not. I'm kind of liking that it's everything's been pretty cruisy. It feels like we're in the the, the, the peak of the TV show. Mm. Everything's running. Just everyone, every character's just rolling. That, it's just working rolling. Just, yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's excellent. I mean, it sounds like a boring show, but a good show for the characters. <laughs> <'cause>, <laughs> no, no. no if everything is going perfectly fine, there's no drama. Yeah. No nothing. Yeah. That's a good thing. It is weird sometimes because you want your life to be like. I always, I, I honestly struggle not to get too tangential, mm. but I struggle with the fact that, you know, we're turning twenty six. Yes, you are, I'm turning twenty six in like four days, in five four days. days. Um, so technically, <laughs> next week would be your birthday episode. I'd, I'd say, if yeah, aligns more with that. It's closer to the actual day. That is um, correct. But it's sort of like one of those things where it's like. You're still young enough that you should be doing as much as you can while you're still able-bodied and stuff. But sometimes you just want to <laughs> land around and do nothing. You kind of want to skip to the point where well, you're old and retired and <laughs> doing yeah. nothing. No, it's it's all subjective. I mean, um, yeah, I'm not the most outgoing physical person in the world, yeah. but I, for me, it's like I'm I'm you know harnessing my energy. I'm I'm letting it sort of rest and digest before I actually need to use it for something mm-hmm. drastic. You know, sure, like being on a film set. I mean, that's that's quite physical. I mean, it depends on the role, but still, you're out yeah. there on location, so that's you know, we just live. We've got to harness our energy of, of of different universes, and we've just got to <laughs> chop hey, and change. I, I haven't been on a set since the one that we were both on together. Yes, I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm running around. And, I'm just saying like that's what I. If I'm gonna like contain my energy. Mm. And like use it sparingly across my life. It is for those one or two times a year when I'm on a set. I reckon that's that makes a lot of sense to me. No worries. Or in bed. Yes. Well, I'm sure in the different universes you're doing all <laughs> kinds of different things. Jake, speaking uh, of universes, do you have any trivia from the film of the week, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse? I do. And uh, you, you've mentioned you already mentioned Spider just a couple of times within this title. There are many Spider Men. In this film, and there are many Spider-Man films out there. My fun fact is simply that this is the tenth Spider-Man film to actually release in cinemas. Now, Zeke, off the top of your head, and this isn't really a trick question. Do you know what the other nine are? Well, you got Spider-Man one, two, three. Yes, the Sam Raimi trilogy. Um, the three new ones are the Tom Holland. Yes, three. Homecoming, so Homecoming, Far from Home, Far from home No and- Way Home. No Way Home. Yep. The Andrew Garfield ones, that's Spider-Man and Spider-Man... Oh, the Amazing Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yes. So that's eight. And then uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Correct. Then yeah. this, this is the 10th one. Of 
those 10, this will be the third that we've actually covered on this show. Of course, we've covered Far From Home and No Way Home in the past. And in total, our 11th superhero film that we've covered on this show. No. I'm not going to make you guess those because... <laughs> A lot of them just were like white noise. Ah, we um, went quite a few weeks without mentioning white noise, but alas, <laughs> you brought it back. Zeke, what's your fun trivia fact for Across the Spider-Verse? Well, this is quite an interesting one. Obviously, this being an animated film and running at two hours and 20 minutes, which Woo! we can talk about the running time in the second half of the show, it is actually the longest American animated film to date, beating out Consuming Spirits... The 2012 film by four minutes. I've not seen... Yeah, I've never experience. heard of that either. It's interesting this is American. I'm trying to think off the top of my head a non-American animated feature film that's longer than this. Because we've talked a lot, Zeke, about... You know, you think of some of the animated films, especially the early ones, like you know, Toy Story was obviously revolutionary for its time mm-hmm. as a CG film. But it's, what, 75 minutes, maybe yeah. 80 minutes? I think it's 82 there's a lot of animated films out there that are quite conservative. And again, going back to like Pinocchio and Snow White and these films that like don't even wouldn't even dare touch the two hour mark because you know, the the what the work that was being done was so revolutionary and so impressive that the films had to be as tight and as conservative as possible. So when you see a film like this that is also incredibly experimental and just the production value of this film is absolutely monstrous on top of the fact that it's two hours twenty minutes is insanity mm. so, I mean even the first film the tight 1 hour 40 so there you go 40 minutes longer than that film Whew. damn and I gotta say this might just be me saying it didn't feel it didn't feel a second of it okay um, <laughs> just save it seek before we get there what have you been watching in the last week? So I have to quickly double check this one because um, I did catch a few things today alone mm. Like you said, we had a we had a lazy a lazy Monday. That's good. Knuckled down, watched a couple of things, but um, let's go off the top of my head. Um, I managed to catch uh, a couple of interesting films. So jumping over to Netflix, mm. go there. I actually did all three of my the other old, films no. were on Netflix, which there you go. Hasn't been getting a lot of love recently. I've recently downgraded the subscription. So, because oh. I just don't watch enough Netflix to justify the, the price. Was, was it multiple screens? Is yeah, that, we that moved was... down to one screen between right. my brother and I because, to be honest, they're very... I don't can't remember the last time we both were on Netflix at the same time. So. Yeah, I think I've seen that. I think we have two screens in this house. I think I've seen it once ever yeah. where there were three people trying to watch something at once. And it's frustrating. I'd give Netflix props. Their basic option is nine ninety nine with no ads, and then they've got then the six ninety nine one with ads. Mm. I don't like that Binge has now moved to sixteen and ten, but the ten is only the ten is with ads. Whereas, is it really? Yeah, I haven't even noticed because I do pay for Binge. I haven't even noticed that it's gotten that expensive. Yeah, and Ko's moved from twenty five to thirty. 30 a month. Yeah, but the problem is you picked a one-screen option. It's only 25, so it's not mm. really worth downgrading. And there yeah. are times when Geordie and I are watching KO at the same mm. time. So is The argument is that the alternative is like Foxtel, so it's still infinitely cheaper to do the 30 a month. Yeah. Okay. And I guess it's you split that, it's still only 15 a month. And, yep. and during the footy season, I probably would just deactivate it when the AFL season finishes. Right. Because I don't really watch... If the A-League... It's like that whole thing where, for some reason, the A-League went on Paramount Plus this year, and <laughs> you're like, great. Like, <laughs> why? Um, 
I've actually officially removed Paramount Plus from the coming next week to streaming. It won't segment. be here by the end of the year. I, yeah, I might. There's no. The, yeah, don't care anymore. <laughs> anyway, no, sorry, yeah. audience. Um, I, I, catch... I want to know the one person that's like, I'm going to stop listening to the Cinema Society <laughs> podcast because they won't tell me what's coming to Paramount Plus next week. I know. <laughs> I dare us. you. I dare you. So I did catch um, a couple of documentaries. I'll kick off with those. Um, I caught the 2022, f- both documentaries from 2022, The Pez Outlaw and Pamela, A Love Story. So, <laughs> Pez Outlaw. What? Um, the Pez Outlaw what is sort of an interesting, um, I want to say the closest thing I could compare it to something like American Animals where, um, or even the uh, Operation Varsity Blues in oh, that yeah. it, uh, had the pieces to camera, but had these reenactments almost running in a more movie-like sequence mm. rather than a, oh, let, we're just creating a reenactment to the point where um, it centers around this uh, kind of a, a little off his rocker um, man, the Pez Outlaw, Steve Glue, who essentially <laughs> smuggles in the early 90s Pez dispensers and unique Pez dispensers from... Eastern European countries back over to America, these pest dispensers that were banned in America, these particular types, and resells them. Was it because they were dangerous? No, it's because there was there was a Pez America and a Pez Europe, and the designs would then get vetoed by the Pez American body Mm. for reasons, not really anything um, specific or explicit. And of course, these pest dispensers then. This Steve Glue character takes them over and sells them for a pretty penny. And wow. it actually, just when you think it's over, adds like an almost like an epilogue caper in which this Steve Glue character then decides to just make his own Pez dispensers. <laughs> because <laughs> the, the Department twist. of Homeland did not register the trade month mark in Pez America, for Pez America. So anyone could make Pez dispensers. That's like a Todd Chavez um, and Bojack getting the rights to Disneyland because they misspelled Disneyland in the original contract. Yeah. <laughs> so it was fun, entertaining. I mean, the style, I think we've seen quite a few different... The, this almost feels like a quintessential Netflix documentary in its mm. architect architectural blueprint. They've almost created almost all of their documentaries to have this sort of format. Um I guess if it works, it works. Yeah, I I think it was a fine doco. It, it probably it was a little long-winded in parts. It was interesting. It's amazing how they find such unique stories to mm. to tell. It's a job for everyone out there. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, he sounded like a true capitalist seek. Yeah, it was quite funny. It definitely was entertaining enough. Just curious, like very just curious to mm. be honest. Um, Fair it, enough. It very much had the. Um, you know, we were talking about what was the one with GameStop, like that GameStop tasting. Uh, I think it was it. called Eat the Rich. Eat the Rich. They're doing, they're doing like a proper. I shouldn't say proper. I think they're doing a movie called Dumb Money, like a Seth Rogen movie that's kind of covered the same subject matter. Yeah, which I'm curious about. I watched um, also this Pamela documentary, Pamela: A Love Story, which is a, a biographical documentary on Pamela Anderson mm. who and basically just sort of tracking her career and sort of where it'll spiral out of control, obviously leading to what most people now know her for, which was that sex tape scandal, mm. which has actually led to the creation of um, a sort of a parody show with Seth Rogen in it called um, 
Pammy and and um, Tommy, I think. Pam and Tommy. Um, Pam and Tommy, which stars Seth Rogen and Nick Offerman. Um, oh. You can currently watch it on Disney+. Plus. Um, came out last year. Um, and this documentary must have had a very quick turnaround from when it was filmed and recorded to when it was released because it follows right and up until early to mid-2022. Um, and then was released, I think, in the latter parts of last year. So... It was inter- I would say it was interesting. I don't think it. Um, I find sort of the the trial by the media and, and even the interesting aspects of sort of analysing like that when they had her and her partner release mm-hmm. that sort of tape, um, how that basically torpedoed her career and you know it, it goes through her being this sort of playboy icon into this and and now even she says like retrospectively it's like then you see other talent like kim kardashian using that as a launching platform for their mm. their careers and how far we've moved away for or been desensitized that now we live in a world where people commercialize that stuff regularly right um the only fans world yes um that we live I, in now i did find it quite interesting from that point of view um i think it went on a little long um it's. It reminded me very much from. I talked about it a couple months ago. Um, you can't kill uh, David Arquette. I talked about mm. that documentary and how it was. How you know the the guy who played Doofy in the Scream movies, David Arquette, and basically how he spiraled out of irrelevancy because of drug and substance abuse, and he even his whole thing about becoming a professional wrestler because he was embarrassed by his time in WCW, and that was the whole point. But it was basically this broken washed up person of the the mid to late 90s mm. trying to find a redemption in some point and 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 Pamela Anderson undergoes a similar thing where in the latter parts of the film she's offered a role on Broadway to play Roxy from Chicago in Chicago and it's sort of her redemption point and it is quite interesting they I think they both hold almost like the the washed up Hollywood star <laughs> redemption story um and they're both serviceable documentaries. I don't think it had anything on something like Amy, which we talked about, which was kind sure. of unique in its presentation. And a lot of these icons are so fascinating now where they are retrospectively um, because of how far they've come. It even reminded me of the, the Dennis Rodman episode in the la- like that Last Dance docuseries of following the Chicago Bulls. So... Um, serviceable documentaries but what about mm. you jake before i finish Very up you good yeah so I, I caught a couple of films as well like you said we both had the lazy day mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a catch-up i wanted to watch some relatively new films now i did say last week i was shocked because i i just didn't believe it that a good person was coming to binge already the zach braff film and it turns out it did so i caught it and i was quite disappointed by it to be honest now i have absolutely no prior beef with Zach Braff like half of the internet seems to have. I'm not going to dwell too much into it. It definitely feels like half of the negative reviews I read, or most of the negative reviews I read, just have like some sort of predetermined beef with Zach Braff and his style of filmmaking. Mm. Uh, and I kind of get it in terms of if you're going to tackle the subject matter that he does, particularly in this film, and I haven't seen Garden State, for example, I get that there is a way to go about it. Um, that being said, the reason I was disappointed with this film is that I wish I could talk to you about it being like this atonal blend between 
you know, the spunky teen irreverence of like Juno, mm. um, you know, the, the, the raw, you know, um, what's it called? Scopophilic look we get into addiction at something like Two Leslie, which I saw a few months ago, which is holds up pretty well. Um, the problem is there's really only a couple of scenes that really invoke this tone and this interesting mix, and the rest of it is just so much more bland, and I just kind of almost immediately forgot about the film after I saw it, which I hate to say about a Florence Pugh film, and mm. to be fair, her performance is absolutely excellent, as always, in this film. She's really carrying it. <laughs> She's yep. trying to do it. Morgan Freeman, also, he's Morgan Freeman, yeah. He does a very <laughs> serviceable job. <laughs> um... But, yeah, and I kind of wish I could take more away from that. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting because the film's inciting incident is this car crash that Ali, that Florence Pugh's character, feels very responsible for and guilty for that kills both the siblings of her fiancé, of the man she's going to marry. Um, and then we skip a year. Okay. And I feel like by skipping a year, it sort of skips all of the potential exploration of grief and the nuances that come with that it kind of skips straight into the part of her life where she's now got this opioid addiction and has to fight that addiction and that's interesting and you know there's a lot of great moments for her as a performer to really to you know embody that role Mm -hmm. and there's some very uncomfortable scenes especially the relationship she has with her mother and then morgan freeman as as the father of uh her fiance or i guess Mm ex-fiance at this point and of course she also killed his other two uh, children. So there is that interesting dichotomy their relationship has where he's trying to be you know, good and accommodating for her and understanding the pain she's gone through as someone who used to be addicted to alcohol. There's yep. a lot of interesting ideas in there. I just think that a lot of the nuance of the actual grief, that, that grief of I feel responsible for killing these people because most of the film is dedicated to just, oh, they're addicts. Yeah. Um, not to say that it's it's less meaningful because of that. I just thought it was a bit of a missed opportunity. I also thought the film went out of its way so many times to just blame material things. There were so many beats in the story that it just like, phones are bad. That phone game will melt your brain. Oh, stop using the phone when we're in, we're in bed. Oh, you were looking at your phone when the car accident happened. Oh, this guy's dating this other girl. I'm going to go stalk his Instagram and that's bad. You know, oh, I didn't realize she was 16. I got catfished on this dating app. You know, just like (laughs) so many examples of phone equal bad. Yeah. And again, like, sure, that's your statement. You want to make that statement. But again, with the subject matter being tackled, it's like, is there not something more interesting and nuanced that we could be doing instead of just like, ah, evil phone, throw it out the window. It's just, yeah. Um, And before I move on, I just have to give a shout out to just how... (laughs) <laughs> hilariously awkward some of the scenes are especially with extras and like crowds and groups there's a scene pretty early on in the film where there's like a, gra- a crowd uh, at a party and this is something about like they're cheering and they're laughing and like that you know it's meant to be this nice moment but it, it just feels feel- very forced it just feels very like uh, awkwardly directed and i feel like there's probably more a first ad thing than a director thing if, if it is like crowds and extras for example mm. and the other one is they're walking there are two characters walking through it looks like a college campus and it just <laughs> there's absolutely no reason for me to be distracted by the extras in the background just walking but there's something about like it's like a video game um like their ai pathway and they have to they, they're strictly tied to this pathway and they can't move from it yeah it's just like it just feels so weird i don't know why it, it just, stood out to me 
<laughs> just feel like you said, it just feels awkward. Yeah, like it, they're trying to be discreet because you're you're meant to be paying attention to the two characters having a dialogue, but because of the way they're walking and the way they sort of intersect next to them and then behind the camera and then in front of the camera, I was just like, was just distracted. I was like, what are you guys doing? That's <laughs> just what they told you to do to walk in this direction they're just so. like the weird sort of i'm just picturing like assassin's creed when they're just like awkwardly <laughs> getting when in you're the just bar. touching people yeah. as you're walking past <laughs> oh god yeah so look i didn't hate the film it has good intentions but a good person i just yeah there were there were too many things in there for me that kind of threw me off that frankly didn't entice me very much um the other film i caught which i was a lot more positive about i saw missing which okay. is the spiritual successor to Searching, the 2018 film. And it still maintains the uh, sort of tense aspects. That Absolutely. Search. I think it's been a long time since I've seen Searching, so I only have like my vague memory of it, how it uses its you know, filmmaking tools as, as you know, a quote-unquote found footage film, but it's mm-hmm. all through the lens of a computer screen or a phone screen, a laptop screen. Um, and it commits to that gimmick in the, you know, to the same... Uh, What's the word I'm looking forward to the to the same um not intensity commitment, I guess is a good yeah. word for it. Uh and even just some of the examples of them using like these dramatic sequences. It zooms out, oh, it's actually just a, a Netflix stream that's part of, you know, a larger collection of you know, there's the email app and then here's the other browser open and then, you know, the FaceTime where how we see our protagonist, but um, so it's all those, it's very much the same gimmick, mm. but like you said, in terms of the story, the actual mystery element, it's so good and it's so engaging. And there's so many like fun twists. This would be a great movie to watch like with a group of people. Cause it's just like so crazy the, <laughs> the way the narrative unfolds and, but again, also just that commentary on again, how frustrating and bureaucratic the system can be when trying to find a missing person. Mm. Versus the the power we have as an individual with a, you know Facebook accounts and email accounts to just do our own investigation. I mean, it's like don't f with cats, and that was obviously a very real version of that yeah. kind of story. But this was a a greatly intense fictionalized one, and I, from memory, I think it's just as good as Searching. So I very much enjoyed it. I hope they do the whole Knives Out. Let's make a bunch of these <laughs> with the, just an anthology of these Searching Missing. What's the next one going to be called? Finding. <laughs> Finding. <laughs> Pursuing. Pursuing. That's a good one. Pursuing. Locating. Location. <laughs> um, but yeah, I quite enjoyed Missing. I definitely recommend it. I had to rent it on YouTube for like six bucks. Worth it? But yeah, absolutely worth it. There you go. it was great. Um, now, before we move on, we did talk about this last week. So Before we get into it, I watched Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris too. Oh, which was cute. did you really now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was cute. Obviously watched it with Lucinda because it was a Lucinda film. That's yes. what I'm going to call them now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lucinda no. films. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was cute. It was fun. It was uh-huh. like, I think it came out with the British Film Festival here in, at Luna and um, it was great. But yeah, nice. Well, it was great. I, I, it was I do fun. remember when it came out. It was out, fine. Yeah. It was perfectly fine. You know, like yeah. it was totally like if I was fifty-five year old, <laughs> I'd find that film fine. It was quaint. Okay, but well, yes, yes, yes. Like like I said, it was Kirsty's mum's favorite film of the year. So yeah, it was fine. Yeah. It was very very easy film to watch. A great woke up to the rainy weather. First film I watched mm. today. Nice little tucked in. Very true. Um, 
just about <laughs> um, a middle-aged woman going to Paris and getting a uh, Dior dress. So. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> we did talk about this last week, Zeke. We had yeah. a little bit of our right off the bat with the Succession series finale. We did talk about a non-spoiler yeah. discussion. Now, I mean, now's a good time. We've given it a bit of time to digest. Oh, you want to break it down? Week. I think it would be cool to just talk a little bit about our final thoughts, spoiler-wise. Mm. Especially now for week removed. I had a lot of time to think about it. Um, yeah, so if you want to go ahead and skip the spoiler discussion for Succession, jump straight into our Spider-Verse discussion, then I recommend jump about 50 minutes into the podcast. I almost should, like put the cue, the Succession music in. Like, that should be... <laughs> I saw your video. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like, on Stephen Instagram. and Blake. It's my first Instagram post in, like, four months as well. Yeah. I thought it was so a good obviously, one. Obviously, previous guest, friend of the show, <laughs> Stephen, and then, obviously, Blake Thompson, who yeah. was your DOP. And Luke Bartel was in there as well. Yes. Gave a thumbs up. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Obviously, uh, it's been a week yes. since the final episode dropped. We found out who succeeded. Yes, we did. <laughs> I got you, Jake. I got you. It was a sticker, yes, League. <laughs> sticker of your head. Um, yeah. So, so, oh, like we've had a little bit of a discussion last week before we started recording, just our yeah. immediate thoughts. But now, now we can go to town. Um, what did you think of how the story wraps up? I still felt like I sit. I think I brought a little bit up last week. Didn't want to bring too much on the show. I felt mm. the last fifteen minutes for me felt very rushed and a little chaos. And I kind of get it because the, the whole show has these moments of chaos that sort of, and then breathe and then there's the result. But it felt the ending was kind of funny because it was, uh, whether it was the reveal of basically how immature and incapable all three of them were, mm. that they're reduced to this petty scuffle <laughs> where everyone can see it. Um, a sibling yeah, for the glass windows um, through the glass window um and that leads to i don't like what i don't particularly like about that scene is that they have the final vote the final say in that scene like i find the idea of of shivs after all that storming back in the room saying no mm. it's very short-sighted and I, I get it but it's like that's like almost too short-sighted for like me? like it all happened too fast. You feel maybe like, or... it almost would be better if it was like one of the other innocuous board members that had a swing vote and they retracted and changed because they saw that outburst. Well, it's interesting because my assumption going into it, and especially once we got to the point of the season where we realised that it's all going to end with this big vote, and it's all just like a full train ride to the finish line in terms of the series, is it's going to be this final board vote. I think back to the vote of no confidence in season one, and I thought it was going to completely echo that sentiment. And again, with Roman being the last hand to go up, and was he going to redeem himself because he couldn't say, you know, to his father's face, like, yes, I want to vote you out of the company? Was this going to be his chance? I was surprised that it ended up being Shiv that had the final say. It definitely had to be one of those two. Mm. I think it would have been thematically very, like, you know, if, if it was Carl. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. <laughs> that, but that said, no, seeing who ends up on top Stewie of Stewie the... potentially. That's what I was thinking, Stewie. That was right. my thought in that moment was Stewie would be this one. And I get it. He's not really had that since the first season. He hasn't really 
been involved in the show at all. He's had sporadic. Well, he's, pop his in. presence has been through most of it because he he was part of the big vote that they had to fix at the shareholder meeting. Yeah. So most of up to the end of the third season was like Stewie and Sandy threatening to destroy the company. So yes. I reckon his presence was very much felt throughout the series. And I feel like it could have been fair that someone like Stewie is mm. the one that actually carries the... He turns around following that outburst and goes, no, sure. see you later. Like, they're not the kind of people that I just want out. I want my money and I want mm. to keep going. Um, yeah. I but, think for me, it, it, because it was a familial um, portrayal, so to speak, and it does come from within the family and someone that uh, that Kendall really had fought, you know, it was done. He thought it was done and then she turned around. And I, and I thought about this a lot as like what where that last minute decision comes from to, no, no, I'm going to go with selling, was there's two things. There's number one, in that time between them deciding, all right, we're going to, um, you know, a mill fit for a king, <laughs> give it to Kendall. Is when the scene she... just goes on forever. <laughs> what? I, I, I love it. Dude, Look, you needed that scene. And I, that, I, I was so happy about the change of pace in the last episode. It was... I found moments of it, really. I like... It isn't such an interesting last episode because it doesn't quite... I feel like every season has the big build-ups. You know, if we think back to what happened in Rome the year before, sure. it's like this, this is wedding that leads to this moment. It's oh, crap moment. And then they have to kind of scuffle and plan something mm. together. And you're right. It is actually a really cool sort of sequence that happens in the kitchen because it's like they all just kind of fall back into being kids again. Yeah, and um, they wake their mum up and, <laughs> and they're all acting like nine-year-olds, yeah. Yeah. I think that's essential because... I assume they're drunk. Like, that's an aspect of that scene. Yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember if they were drinking. They were having dinner. They're probably drinking. I don't dinner. know. The way Kendall's acting in that scene screams that he's drunk. But I think... I think looping... Yeah, but I think the whole the childlike aspect comes from they finally align together on this idea of we're just going to crown Kendall. We're going to stop fighting amongst ourselves and we're going to, you know, hold the company. So I I feel like that's where that childhood behavior comes from where they're reverting okay. back into children. Uh the yeah, but that I think that's why you need it because it just it goes to show that it, they can have these fleeting moments of togetherness and you think about where they were at the start of season 4 where they had been you know, essentially kicked out of the company with Logan's decision mm. where they were broken, but they were united. You know, the three of them were going to work together to do this new company. And of yeah. course being dragged back to Waystar is what's got them to start scheming against each other again. But it, it ends on this note where not only do they lose the company, but they lose the relate. I mean, do they ever speak to each other again after the fight? Yeah. In that boardroom? I would, I would say it's a fair bet to say no. Mm. I mean, it's a pretty irredeemable relationship. I mean, my my other thought process is in that moment is she knows to, um, Tom's going to be the one, like Shiv's thought process is mm. she knows Tom's going to be the one who's going to head the ship and maybe there's a hope of battling from underneath to, to upheaval him. But, I mean, his commanding nature in that last 15 mm. minutes, which is the first time we had seen him like that especially within that relationship um commanding and there there's there's a moment even in when he gets into the car and stuff and his his reserved nature and 
because he always knew he was the one who was without the power and now that he but he was always someone that when had the and we've seen it throughout the show with mm. his relationship with Greg like when he's in the position of power he doesn't ever let it go mm. he never lets Greg ever secede him in his position yeah as low as his position is um and we see it even throughout that last season he feels disempowered for the longest time to people like Carl and Frank and that's why Carl's allowed to speak to him the way he does and he just mm. takes it but in that moment when he just <laughs> looks over to them knowing he is now the, the sort of the top, top dog, dog yeah he's just like I'm going to just destroy everything I um, guess that's the thing especially looking back on the whole show like how Tom played his cards just so much more carefully into the chest and it even goes back to the scene in season three when him when Kendall's trying to convert him over to the to the rebellion side, so to speak. And he says he's like, I've never seen Logan get effed once, and I've seen you get effed many times. And it's just like that rational, careful thinking yeah. that is that has kept him in that position all the way to the top when it finally matters now with Matson in there. I mean, it becomes very apparent his relationship with Shiv for the long, like has just been a about ensuring that he stays within touch of the top mm. um, to the point where he saw an opportunity to sort of, like you said, F her over in Rome um, to get closer to Logan, mm. even brief- briefly. Um, <laughs> but his enduring power and that moment when... I, I think there are bits in the episode I really like. I just find the ending so... I mean, so real... And mm. often real was anticlimactic because it's just, oh, we really have been rooting for very incompetent children. Yes. And the whole point of this show is to outline how each of them, in their own ways, has no right to succeed. Yeah. But well, they especially often, with the way it often, ends, yeah. They often parody Connor to try and hide their own insecurities or how insufficient they are to mm. be that, that Logan Roy. Because... Connor is so comedic in his, um, even his scene where he's got people putting stickers on things, which, what a <laughs> fantastic, best callback within an episode uh, at the end. But his idea of doing laps and then those with the most stickers so on an item. Funny, yeah. and, um, That's his, it's a system that Connor and only Connor could come up with. <laughs> it's, it's an episode that has so many um, peaks and troughs. Yeah. Like it has, or it just has... I wouldn't say it's just all out. Sort of like the the finale of Breaking Bad is just full blown. Like it's right. sprinting to the finish line. Whereas this sort of stops and starts. And like you said, it has that driving question. Will they finally let Kendall have the ball? They mm. have, there's an amazing scene between um, Roman and, and Shiv on the beach. Sort of being like, oh. That he's just sort of succumbing to the yeah. reality that they have to vote for him. Greg does his smartest thing ever. And then, <laughs> the translation. Getting out the translator. Um, yeah. Tries to get sort of in, and then we get that amazing moment. Like I sent you that reel of people reacting to Tom being like, oh, I got yeah, you, yeah, yeah. even That's though you so tried funny. to mess with me. <laughs> because at the end of the day, Tom's just used Greg. That's his catalyst. Mm. If something goes wrong, he'll throw Greg to the wolves. Yeah. And they've had that relationship the whole way through. Yeah, um, and it's so... I mean, the relationship that him and Greg have in particular is so 
interesting. There is authentic love there, and there is that almost protective side that that Tom does have for Greg, despite. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> despite I think Tom, everything. Tom, at any if any point, and I have to admit that moment when he's walking towards the room and the score's hitting, you you really yeah. see how much of a monster he was as a person. No, I don't think there is any. There's just the Greg is. Greg is just a more insufficient Tom. Yeah, a lesser no, I, Tom. I don't know, because I feel like this goes back to that question in terms of Tom and Shiv's relationship, which is so incredibly explored, in, especially in the last season, where did he actually... He says, he's like, yeah, money is important to me, my career mm. is important to me, but I did marry you because I loved you. And I do believe that, and I do believe Tom is one of the only characters in the show that has love to give out, and because... Shiv shivs him so much so many times or neglects him that I think some of that love does seep into his relationship mm. with Greg and as much as he treats Greg horribly a lot of the time there are also a, a similar number of times where he actually is very kind and caring to Greg in a sense and I think that last one that very last moment at the end of the finale is one of those moments where you, you've completely ruined it but I've still got you I'm still going to look after you which is and that's the beauty of this ending. You say it's like it has the the potential being anticlimactic because it is kind of sad and deflating. And you're right. I think once we shift our focus back to that, this is just a story about a bunch of people who should not succeed and are unable to yeah. succeed. It's almost like a cautionary tale in that sense of what neglect does and like childhood trauma and how that leads into their adult lives and the horrors. It's that also Logan's the, it's the impossibility of legacy. It's the paradoxical mm. nature. And obviously yep. there's, there's such massive direct correlations with the Murdoch family and how all of those kids will inherently, and, and there are a lot of parallels and there's very obvious videos that draw those parallels, even though the creators don't say, Oh, it's about the Murdoch. It's, pretty much about oh no no they've they've said this started as a murdoch documentary mm. and then it slowly turned into a fictionalized television show they they straight up admitted that and it's interesting because it is that impossibility of, of someone who has built such an insane empire mm. um how do how does one live up to that how does one even rival that mm. and and how does one not have a skewed reality because everything was handed to them like and to the conversation where they throw millions and even billions of dollars around like it's kind of nothing. Mm. It really goes to show that all that happens is that the the predator of a jungle gets old and gets taken out by a larger up-and-coming predator. Um, And that's what's happened. You know, that's what Skarsgård serves is eventually he'll be consumed by something greater or something rivaling. And it is that in, in... possible cycle i mean there's that moment where in the last episode that that i think logan's naming all the presidents um oh yeah on the video recording <laughs> but there there's almost a moment in there I'm, I'm thinking i'm like i wonder if he's naming all of the competitors he's taken out in his time all uh, right um there was a moment i thought that but mm. you got to think it's like how many did he get rid of um yeah which is, i mean the season starts with the whole pierce acquisition being the way that they try and go head to head, and that actually doesn't amount to anything. No, well, that's it. And and even though the sale of Waystar and ATN and all that went through, and you know all the kids are now multi billionaires more so than you know than the rich they already were. But you're right; that doesn't the Pierce it doesn't go through anymore because their relationship is completely 
severed. So there is nowhere to go with that. And to your point with what you said earlier about, you know, this idea that it's all like a game in a sense. I mean, that comes from when Roman says at the end of the series, he says, we're bullshit. This is all bullshit. And I think that is very specifically targeting mm. the jargon and the terminology these characters have been using this whole show, which is like, you know, we're going we're gonna to kill them, we're going to slit their throats, and we're going to do this. And all of the, the metaphorical speech, mm. which is all, you know, real business jargon, they're not actually killing anyone per se in terms of the metaphorical language they're using. But I think that's what he's referring to is that's all bullshit and this whole climbing chase up the ladders or bullshit yeah so i love i love that being sort of the end cap especially for roman's character to come to that realization do you think we'll get some form of epilogue film or show uh season i really succession i really hope not i think i i kind of don't know where else you take it from here because the more i think about the ending the more i just absolutely love it the ambiguity of it as well in terms of well, what are all these characters do now? It's like, you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't, because Kendall, sure, he's out of it. He's now out of this spiraling mix that is the corporate world, but he looks like he wants to jump over that, that railing well, and drown. He's completely, at that point, set. he has no real redeemable relationship with his actual family, his daughter, and his, you know, with, with Rava. Mm. I mean, it's it was strenuous at best at the start of the season. By the end of the season, it's pretty much a burned bridge. I mean... She doesn't really want anything to do with him, and there's only tied mm. to him from a settlement point of view, really. Mm. Um, and he's so disjointed away from his kid, and um, one can only imagine what becomes of, of Shiv and Tom's child that is yeah. coming into the world. Which and- is, you can only imagine horrible things, the cycle repeating, Shiv, Shiv became her mother, and <laughs> and Tom's now the... the- potentially neglective CEO dad. And that's to my point. Like, sure, we Kendall being out of the cycle is that feels like a horrible, sad ending for him. But all the characters that are still in the cycle, like Shiv and Greg, those also feel like horrible endings because for them, they're still at, part of this horrible at chase. The end of the day, like you said, um, the ending serves as a perfect analog to the fact that every character inherently got what they deserved. Yeah. I mean, Connor is, is, he is in head well he's purchased mm. his father's house in his weird sort of Connor way but is kind of content with the fact that he's holding um you know his relationship with willow is kind of borderline a hostage situation but <laughs> not really i mean she is uh, she's ho- she's hoping to get away with the <laughs> see how the menken trials go um uh, but but to your point i think connor because he's kind of the most removed from everyone he's probably got one of the least saddest endings because he moved on from Logan's empire the quickest of any of the kids. Yeah, because he just inherited the money and just kept going. I mean, yeah. it's he went on to do Connor things. Um, <laughs> um, and there's no doubt he'll probably spurt all that wealth between Willow and him will probably spurt all their wealth away before they die. They'll never have a kid or anything like that, let's be real. But um, it's like what she's doing. You know, she's talking about bringing in like a, was it a cow-patterned couch or something and putting it <laughs> in that area and they got and plans they, they got plans they got plans but it's like like you said shiv who was basically keeping tom at arm's length and and constantly being the dominant one in their relationship ends up being submissive which is like mm-hmm. her nightmare being submitted submissive to a relationship although she doesn't really have to stay with tom but she almost feel obliged to stay with tom out of the fact that 
by that glimmer of hope, she might be able to weasel her way back in to Waystar. Well, for me, for me, that's that is the position she is now stuck in forever and ever. The the wife of the CEO, and I think that's the great tragedy of her character as someone who's been, you know, a woman trying to navigate through this man's world and you know, sidelining in the political side as a way to, you know, step past her brothers who are always going to be one step ahead of her for the traditional sense of the corporate hierarchy. So I think for her, it's a tragedy because she's, that's her role now. She's the CEO's wife. Yeah. And I think there is no escape. Unless you can try, but... She has that money too. But like you said, they they all feel like their spirit's so broken by the end of the show. Yeah. That it almost feels like that's the fate we see. I mean... Roman, I think, is just going to... He's probably the one character that has the potential to redeem, in a sense, but is such a weak-willed person. Mm. Um, I mean, in the last three episodes, he breaks down crying in each of them, um, which is not a bad thing, but it's sort of that trying to be this really... Um, to live up to his name, to be this Roman mm. sort of character and... and just there's, can't. there's definitely an inferiority complex. Yeah. That's where the syllables were coming in, Zeke. Um, with Roman, because even it's not even just his small stature, but the stature, but the you know the fact that he was the one who was constantly beaten as a child, and he's the one who always feels like he has to sort of prove himself. People keep calling him a moron and an idiot. Um, but that being said, you know, you look back at the very first episode, he. The, one of his first lines in the entire show was like, oh, I'm glad I'm out of here. Like this, It always felt like a cage to me. And I think going back to that, and he has that little smirk when he's sitting at the bar, I think he's he's the one that's glad to be out of it all. And yeah. More so than... Uh, Kendall has lost everything. But yeah. I think Roman, he's got a chance, you're right, at, at moving on. Yeah. I think there's... And obviously, yeah, Kendall was sort of just robbed of, of, of everything. Um, I mean, he definitely has that suicidal mm-hmm. uh, thousand yard stare at the end of the and like you said we, we brought up last week the fact that they did a take where he tried to jump in and mm. I think it's good that they've left that unspoken yes there. me too yeah um, yeah I think uh, the show's greatest merits was the fact it felt so real it felt like a an authentic driving question like we were really getting a look into um, the lives of of one of the richest, most dominant families. And um, I think it held true to that Mm. to us without, with still adding dramatic flares and the ending kind of serves to ground the reality. Once again, you know, this is a show where we had characters running for president, but like the best part is that person could pull less than 1% of the vote. And Mm. despite having all this money thrown at it or, or, you know, cruise ship scandals where they're willing to throw character. And if anything, like we said, every character kind of got what they deserved. Greg was a sleazeball, but a pretty loyal soldier mm. to whoever was willing to look out for him and, and is spared out of the fact that he's so expendable as a person <laughs> um, and clueless and dim-witted. And um, Tom just endured the whole show. Yeah. He's a pain sponge. Yeah. As he puts it himself. And no. kind of got put in the position where, yes, he's expendable and yes, he's open to scrutiny, but he has no problem being someone's puppet. He's openly said that the whole way through the show and mm. as a result. And yeah. yeah. We stand Tom. Yeah. 
It's because well, he ate Logan's chicken. That's the... Oh, we haven't even ever talked about this when we brought up Succession. But mm. I'll give Binge credit, and I don't know how long they've been doing this for, but the start of every episode, there would be three little... Oh, little keywords. Keywords. <laughs> and they were but so funny. I think it's only this season they did that. Oh, it's great. It was... I'm dying. Because be, they'd be obscure, like... In the news episode, it'd be wasabi. Yeah. And you'd be like, what's wasabi got to do with anything? Or woof woof. And woof, you're woof. Like, <laughs> like, woof. Yeah, you have to figure it out as you watch the episode. Or, or was it false flag? False, false flag. flag. <laughs> um, yeah. No, those were great. I think I think they only did that this year. But yeah, I always love those as well. Yeah, trying to guess sort of ahead of time. And yeah, well, I remember, the, I remember the first time I noticed it was well after I watched the first episode of the season... And I just had the disgusting brothers on there. Yes, <laughs> I was like, "What?" I was so confused. I didn't realize they were live updating the keywords. But yeah. So how many Emmys is it going to win? All of them. All of them. <laughs> Everyone that it's nominated for. I'm so relieved because Sarah Snook is in a different category to Ray Seahorn. She's in lead and Ray Seahorn's in supporting. He's like, oh, thank God. So they they can both have a chance to win. <laughs> I want to give a shout out before we quickly move on. Uh, if you look at, we mentioned Stephen Clark earlier. If you go to his letterbox, he actually reviewed. I think it's the controlling the narrative, um, like BTS clips that HBO put out. They mm-hmm. someone compiled them very cheekily and and called it a movie on Letterboxd. So Stephen used that to write a very, very, very deep analysis of his thoughts on the finale. Yeah, and he the did whole a show. blog, didn't he? Yeah, the yeah, he did post. the blog, but it's also on Letterboxd. So I recommend you absolutely the face of the Roy's. Yeah. No, it's very detailed, very interesting. You should go check it out. It's a good one. Excellent. Well, it's time for us to move into the film of the week. Like Jake said, we've jumped into the future. Well, we've actually jumped across many universes. Jake, have. what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to be her five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? I am the spot. <laughs> it's not funny. Don't, don't do that. Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying Mira, to kill that's my what I gotta go. He's lying to you, and I think you know it. What's up, danger? Miles! Want to get out of here? Oh, when? So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Who's the new guy? This is unbelievable. This is the lobby. Miguel O'Hara. The whole thing was his idea. What's a guy got to do to join this spider team? You can never be part of this. Don't even get me started on Doctor Strange and the little nerd back on Earth 1999-99. Come on, go easy on the kid. He had a terrible teacher. Peter. Miles. Mayday. You have a baby? I have a baby. I'll take it from here. After reuniting with Gwen Stacy, Brooklyn's full-time friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is catapulted across the multiverse where he encounters a team of spider people charged with protecting its very existence. Would you call spider ham and that and that big T-Rex, would you call them spider people? They're animals. Well, I, I think they identify as spider people. Oh, okay. That's how it works. Fair enough. 
That's all I'm yeah. going to say on that. Do you see the, the <laughs> this film is basically just the Lego movie? <laughs> um, well, you know what? And I don't want to get into spoilers Everyone's already. special. Everyone's special. That's it. But when everyone is special, Zeke, nobody's special. It's a syndrome. Yes. Said that. Yeah, from The Incredibles. Yes, yes. So I caught this last night, and you caught this the night before last night, right? Yes, yes. yes. So. Oh, no, no, we both saw it yesterday, but I saw it yesterday afternoon. Huh. You saw it yesterday night. Yes. First trip to Palace Cinemas. Mm, really enjoyed it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I had a little Spanish cheese board, which was nice. Uh, Very good. I had drink. a coffee. I had a flat white. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's <laughs> To be honest, I always get a beer, and I always regret it, because I get dopey after a beer. I don't like drinking at the movies, because we did, we did it quite a few times in 2019. I remember drinking... Prior to once put time in Hollywood, Joker. Mm-hmm. Don't I'm mind like, it after the movie, sure, but before the movie, I agree. I get a bit drowsy. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just it alters my brain too much. I want to enjoy the film straight laced, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's but, totally yeah. fair. No, my my Hoyt screening. To be fair, I knew what I was getting into going to. I was on a time crunch, so I went to Garden City. And I will, I will be fair. It was a completely packed cinema. Lots of families and little children and everything. And mm. a, this is a perfect family movie. But there were two, maybe ten-year-olds, that were in my seat. Yes. And I have to say, they were very polite. They were very polite about moving, moving seats, so I could sit in my. They were very apologetic. That's nice. Yeah. That's you never know with kids these days. You know? I had a very <laughs> respectful cinema also. No Excellent. real issues. Mostly adults. I don't think there were too many kids. There were a couple of people behind me that started chatting in the first five minutes. And I was worried. Oh, no. Um, but Can't they... chat during this film. You're going to miss 50 plot points if you blink. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, it's quite quiet. Um, I think I did notice some there some people have had audio mixing issues with this film. Yes, yes. Um and my tenant, tenant issues with the with the dialogue. Tenant issues and to be honest Palace does not have very loud speakers or at least not oh. for this mix or the cinema I was in. Um So, so was it the, was it the dialogue or just the whole thing was quiet? I think it was just it generally was just we said in the first like two minutes when Gwen's doing all the drums and stuff it wasn't very loud at all I will say that is the only scene where I was like oh boy I can barely understand the dialogue and then after that I was totally fine yeah but so it was an extreme mix- screen so the sp- there were good speakers that's interesting mm-hmm. um yeah so obviously the, the film opens with her basically catching us up to date with the last film mm. and she's playing the drums and yeah it is quietly a, it's Either it was either too quiet or yeah, like I said, the drums were completely getting rid of her sort of narration. It was very quite difficult to disseminate exactly what she was saying in parts. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, it was it was what it was. You know, um, it was it was <laughs> the film. <laughs> okay, look, this film's currently sitting four point seven on IMD. No, on Letterbox, right? Yes, I'm. I'm actively refreshing the page because it is Monday, which means any moment they're going to update their top two fifty narrative films. This will be number one within the next couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in fact, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm drawing a lot of parallels between this film and Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is about this time a year ago, maybe a little longer. Uh, you know, overstimulating multiverse story that has a lot of heart and a lot of action and a lot of comedy and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things in it. 
um, that is also having this extreme immediate reaction where it is now it's going to be number one on Letterboxd mm. and it, I think it will drop down at the same pace I don't think it's going to be number one for too long um, purely because 4.7 is an absolutely insane score I mean if you don't give it a five star review you're actively dragging that score back yeah <laughs> that's what we're talking about here in terms of the popularity of this film um, so I guess the question right off the bat with all this in mind Zeke does it deserve that 4.7 no no okay um. Well, I don't. I I think I'm going to sit in a very small camp and, and say this film was okay. I didn't, yeah. Wow. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> in love this film. I think this film really benefits from sort of what I'm going to say is the the blueprint for why these superhero films have, and even honestly, why any. Although I don't really associate this with like the MCU. Sure. Films. Totally different camp in terms of who's making these films, yeah. What I don't like about this film is it sort of profits off Easter. It just exploits, it gets to the point of exploiting just Easter eggs, it felt Mm. like. Like canonical Easter eggs, which, to be honest, Star Wars has been known to do. And I feel like sometimes Star Wars is quite exploitative of its its Easter egg to the point where now it's made these live-action shows based off of... Of a successful cartoon, obscure characters um, and obscure cartoons. Yeah, exactly. Remember obscure. that. Remember that droid. At Thirty minutes into this one random movie, we're going to make a eight episode miniseries. And then it's all oh, it's five stars. It's great. <laughs> um, and it is. It it does feel a little bit like. Um, and I think the film takes the film's very. You you said at the top of the show, wow, it didn't feel like it was two hours and twenty minutes long. No, I I kind of especially towards the end when I started, I felt the pacing. I was like, that's right. I remember when they announced this, they announced it as uh, Spider-Verse part one. one. I remember that. I was like, oh, I see what they're doing. They're really going to drag out these beats and then this is going to end. Um, but in my head, I was like, I could go for another hour or two of this. Like, this is just phenomenal. Oh, it definitely ramps. It ramps to the point where you, f- you start to get invested in the film and then the, mm. the film ends. Um <laughs> Which begs the question that was this really a two... For me, I don't see the two-parter. I don't see the first hour and 10, hour and 20 minutes really meaning anything other than... um, Wow. Then, like, set up? Just set up, yeah. I mean, we're, we're getting to the point, so, you know, we can talk a little bit more about the intricacies of the plot, but, you know, I think the first 25 to 30 minutes is just Gwen stuff, which is fine. Mm. I don't mind flipping the narrative and taking a different character's perspective. Yeah, this is definitely like, I mean, from, yeah, the Gwen opening narration and the fact that she gets, like, the most complete arc in this film out of anyone with the relationship between her and her dad. It definitely feels like, like, the Gwen film in that sense, even though it is telling a larger story. So I did well, appreciate it's, it's both, that. They're both, I mean, both Miles and Gwen kind of have the same plot, like, the same arc. They both need to come out to their parents as their spider person and we just see Gwen do it in the earlier stages and she gets her full arc by the end of it that Gwen's dad, you know, Captain Stacy, accepts her for being Spider-Woman, essentially. Right. And go save the world. For some, And it's, like, cool. Like, like that was a very long-winded plot. And obviously the whole thing about Miles, not like, he feels out of place because he's kind of... He's in the anomaly. Mm. I get that. Um, but... That was kind of that was actually part of the plot of the first film too, that was tied into him mm. being 
he wasn't supposed to like there was a kind of a surprise he was trying to find himself a spider-man it's kind of in a way rehashing the same identity plot as the first film except it's just another it's just a tool oscar isaac spider-man telling him he can't be (laughs) spider-man rather than and i think it it really takes away for me there are little things like i think this completely puts like jake johnson spider-man in the background and kind of just makes him an accessory to this this plot and we start adding in all these other ones and the last 10 minutes they just ramp it up like when just assembles a team of basically people from the first one that I don't think they got, like you said, Billy Crystal's Spider-Ham back or um, Nick Cage's mm. noir Spider-Man. Yeah, they're credited as archival voices, yeah. which is worrying because if they really did make, you know, part one and part two, they made Beyond the Spider-Verse simultaneously. It's like, well, if they couldn't get the voices for this film. They made them at the same time. They probably don't have their voices for the next film either. That's what I'm a little worried about yeah. from that standpoint. But look, to your point, I think before we get further... I disagree in the sense that I don't think they're rehashing the same coming-of-age story. I think they're greatly expanding on it. because. And I rewatched the first one a few days ago, very much isolated from watching this one. I just kind of wanted to refresh myself on you know, the themes and the story and how things play out, in case there were specific Easter eggs and it turns out that the man who gets hit by a bagel ended up being a big, <laughs> important part of the first movie. Oh, I, I, we um, can get into spot as a villain oh i love spot no, do not. <laughs> i love spot so much especially look, compared to like fist in the first one who's like <laughs> such a good villain in the first one but it's like a nice more traditional villain but sorry I, you go for yeah, yeah so um i think with the original film first off my the reason he's relatable and the reason we're going through this coming of age arcs because miles is not like a strong character in the sense that he doesn't know how to control his newfound abilities he can't control his invisibility. He can't control his venom powers. He can't control when he sticks to walls. You know, and the other reason that these spider people counterparts at the time can even are on sort of the same playing field is because they're all glitching. Because you know their their atoms aren't jazzed about <laughs> being in that that dimension. So that's why Miles is able to play catch up is because they're all experiencing the glitches. So I think the coming of age story is so much more grounded in just him becoming that strong character who takes that leap of faith and I'm going to go and do the right thing save the world. This film takes it to a whole new level in the sense that obviously it's expanding into the multiverse so there's all these different Spider-Men or Spider-People characters but the fact that they're doubling down not only on whether he the story that he is trying to insert himself into that he's not allowed to insert himself into because we can get into that with the canon and the timeline and all of that stuff mm-hmm. so it, it, it's almost like the film is trying to double down and you are really not meant to be this hero this person and him saying over and over and there's other examples like the college counselor saying like oh well your Puerto Rican background that's your story and them saying like your story you're not meant to be Spider-Man I feel like it's really doubling down on those things because it, it's happening on such a larger scale mm. I think, for me, my big reductions, mm. why I think this, this plot really is not... It doesn't speak to me, or I even would argue to say I don't think it's actually as foolproof as... I think everyone's getting really caught up in the, the noise of all... Like I said, all of the Spider-Man Easter eggs. For me, personally, I think it's like... It's the big thing about we get introduced in the first part to um, a couple of new Spider-Men. Like mm. I said, the the 
the big one being um is it twenty ninety nine? Is that twenty ninety? No, I think it's like nine nine nine. Isn't it? it's like the ridiculous? It's like meant to be super futuristic. Um, Spider Man. It's very hard to. I got, got Spider Man twenty ninety nine. Let's it? go with that. Spider Man twenty ninety nine. Oscar <laughs> Isaac. Sure, that's what it Let's is. Let's yeah. go off the actors' names because it's yeah. easier to do it that way. Um, and obviously he's had this real grungy, almost Batman esque backstory. Um, so he's like. Mm. The gruffest of them all. The gruffest, but they're this elite task force, and obviously when we hit that midpoint of this film, we get revealed that it's not an exclusive elite task force. It's basically just every Spider-Man mm. except Miles Morales, yep. which I I despise that. And despise the reason that. I... I genuinely dislike the whole... It's like I said, it's almost a reverse Lego movie. It's like, it's almost like, it, well, it's essentially Lego movie. There's a bunch of people that are really special and really good at doing stuff, and Emmett's the only one that can't do it. But it's essentially the same thing because what I don't like about that is it completely takes away from. Um, I don't mind Gwen being this kind of conflicted character mm-hmm. who's trying to run away from stuff. It's that teenage aspect, it's fine. But to have Jake Johnson's character, even Penny. Um, who gets a brief cameo and like technically mm-hmm. we assume um, Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Noir, Nick Cage's and Crystal's character yep. are on the side of the Spider-Verse because mm-hmm. everyone's against Miles at that point. Yeah. And that to me, I, I despise that because I feel like it should almost be, it should have been this elite smaller task force, this small antagonistic controlling faction. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas all these other Spider-Men... Um, are kind of innocuous to this. They only get included when their timeline or their world, yeah. sorry, their universe is affected. Um, and that, to me, would be more would be easier to follow. This idea of this shadow organization, basically, think they're better than everyone else. They're able to mm. control the narrative because, at first, you know, all good antagonists. There's the the believability that the way they're doing it is the right way, right. but then that leads technically Miles being killed in this this world. That's where we're going with this and will be re- probably revealed in the second film. Because the second film will go and get darker, you know. <laughs> it will. Well, we just had our Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I, I just, I can't <laughs> bind. And I know these characters undergo their little mini arcs and they join Miles' little rebel faction by the end of it. But I can't even buy them believing in it in the first place. Well, I think there's a few things there. Because it goes against the first film to me. I think the confliction here that the the people, I guess, scripting it and then designing all these characters, because you know, from a from a studio standpoint, you have to include as many as many of these characters as possible. You know, put them in the trailers and get people excited. So you need to have two hundred and fifty plus character designs yes. as part of this, you know, what you're right, I think really should be this kind of smaller secret uh enforcement group so to speak yeah and the film introduces them this way because gwen has to desperately convince spider-man 2099 to to let her join and even then she's sort of on these training reels she's got a close eye on so it's very much presented in the first half of the film as like this small elite group that turns out to seem much larger just turns into a rick and morty episode in the <laughs> it the does it's of the rick Lan- people it's the rick lantis thing is, yeah. is that what it's called rick lantis is yeah well, it, was, it used to be the citadel the citadel sorry Ricks, yeah and i think they changed it to the atlantis thing after but it totally is it's the exact same thing it's like yeah. they just and there's 25 minutes of just spider-man easter egg paraphernalia <laughs> I will say, and I, I think we're getting well into spoilers now, because in, in terms right. of, like, Miles being the... Um, we're just going to call it spoilers now. Mm. Miles being the, the sort of the the 
the outcast, so to speak. I mean, it goes back to, like, literally, he has broken the canon. He is not meant to be Spider-Man. And the assumption is literally every other character in this citadel, if you will, is. So I think that's where that, that change comes from, the fact that he's not accepting his fate and his canon that his dad must die. So I... I that's obviously how they're phrasing it, and how, and again, the uh, the coming of age story of him against the world. But again, it goes back to I think there's the marketing side of it that needs to fit in as many of these characters as possible. Sure. Um, versus like the story. But then again, I I I mean, I don't really have a problem with there being that many. But it's not for me. It's not even it. about that. It's the fact that somehow you managed to convince basic. Well, we assume just every other Spider-Man in this Spider Verse. Mm that he's an outlier, we've got to get rid of him. I just don't buy that. Right. I don't buy that narrative. And I think it's very reductive for the original Spider-Verse cast to, even if they do change tune by the end of the film, to even be on the side of that. Like, except Gwen is the only one I can kind of buy because she's at that conflicted identity. She's having a very similar parallel plot going on with miles yeah um it would have served better to be this like elite task force that and i don't mind all the spicer spideries mm. if we could just do like i said what they do in the lego movie where they jump between all the different worlds and you get all those like like mm. there could be a lot more of the jump we see a little bit when we go to uh is it bombay hatton i think it yeah, is yeah mumbai hatton yeah um <laughs> Where we get i look into what one of these alternative timelines um and we could have just had a little bit more universe jumping. I mean, it's essentially then just a Spider-Man version of a Rick and Morty episode, but um, <laughs> if you want your serviceable Easter eggs at that point, maybe. But I just, for me, I don't buy that everyone would be like, oh, okay, so all these things have to happen. Like, they've, it feels weirdly disjointed from the first film to me because the first film, the whole point is they don't really understand why they ended up in someone else's universe. And now we just have this universal police force that dictates every universe and they all believe in these fundamental rules that right well i think the reason they believe in the fundamental rules is because it applies to all of them if they've all had an uncle ben that died and their you know their fearless leader is telling them this is part of the canon and he says when i tried to break the canon this is what happened me trying to was it save his daughter i can't even remember the the story no he moved to a different universe in which his daughter to replace yeah gotcha Um, um so, like, I I mean, the fact of the matter is, I feel like, narratively, it's more about making Miles feeling isolated. Yep. yep. You really don't like this movie. I don't dislike... <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sit here. This is not a Last Jedi... I'm just like, this movie's just, like... Like, this is not going to end up being one of those, but this is going to be the closest we've had in about five years. I just... I, I don't so. see the value in this this film i think there are moments i really like oh my god animation is fantastic like yeah. i would well, never... i've been saving because the animation is just a tour de force yeah just absolutely impeccable and the the complete and utter um spectrum of styles mm. and feelings and and the humor hits the humor always hits it's very great quippy writing um i did laugh when i'm supposed to laugh just like i did in the first film but I think the first film has so much more to offer than this film. And maybe because it's a two-parter, maybe we'll get... I'll like mm. the second film a lot more. And then that will lead to me liking this film a lot more. But I just don't... For me, personally, I don't buy Oscar Isaac's antagonistic Spider-Man character. I think it's very 
one-dimensional at this point and i do not i cannot stand the idea of of this all world eater being so clumsy and clunky at the like he's just not uh, like you said all right well, let's goes, talk about the spot then let's talk about it yeah we can talk <laughs> while about we're spot. here well what i love about the spot i mean yeah you have that we've seen this before though the the archetypal villain that you know, is not very villainous from the beginning. Is sort of stumbled Jamie into Fox. this. Jamie, Spider-Man. sure, sure. There's plenty of examples. Someone who's just like stumbled into this role and is obviously uh, trying to maintain their powers. They're obviously not perfect at it because trying to break into that little uh, ATM. I always called it an ATM machine, and then remembered the joke in the film about calling it an ATM machine. Mm. Um, but the fact it takes him several tries to actually get a spot inside there, so he's still learning. He's clumsy. Uh, but the fact that someone who is learning and clumsy and isn't, it, at first doesn't seem that evil, it actually has so much power that he could destroy everything. I love the concept of someone yeah. who isn't that malicious or evil having that power. And it's a, it's almost an unpredictable, there's an unpredictability to it of this person who I don't think realizes how powerful he is, despite wanting to become that powerful. That's his goal, ultimately, is to get more spots and to become more powerful. And I love his design at the end of the film. It just, it is terrifying. Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> so funny. Oh God, that Don Hurts field sort of nihilistic. All the drawings are ripping apart. That's like yeah. his look by the end of the film. Um, yeah. I, I just think he's, I just think he's a very fun character. And the, and the fact that they keep poking fun at him for being a villain of the week. When in fact he's actually so much more dangerous than that. Yeah, and maybe that's I love that aspect. Of it. I guess there is that aspect to it. I, to be honest, my most of my disgruntled nature comes from the other, the Spider Verse aspect. Mm. I think it, it was very such a weird way of um, it was basically this that scene in in Lego movie when Emmett rocks up to where all of the master builders are and they're all like, oh, you're not one of us," and you're just like, "Okay, cool," <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I, I for me it was that reductive nature. I, I I I can get behind I guess Schwartzman's sort of broken voice nah broken voice villain where right. he's like, um, I wish there was a little bit more of a backstory and a motivation there. I think the first films, I was a big fan of Lee Schreiber's uh, Fisk. Mm. Um, I thought there was enough there. It was a nice, more traditionalist villain for sure, and. Like you said, this one is definitely one of those. Uh, roll. He's a rolling snowball, getting mm. bigger and bigger as yeah, the, the yeah. film goes on. Um, I don't know how he's going to carry the menace in the second film because he's definitely better at playing the comedic aspect. By the end of the film, when he's like, but it, like you said, it all centers around Miles Morales technically because um, he's Miles Morales's villain mm. um, and arch nemesis. So yeah, well, I, I thought he did have a pretty. I mean, obviously they're tying the backstory to the original film. Um, in terms of the explosion causing him to come this way. But what I loved about that scene when he's explaining his backstory is how angry he was getting as he was telling it. It's almost like he didn't really realize until that moment just how angry he was at yep. Miles for causing him to become this way. And I love that you can almost see it happen in real time with the way he delivers that monologue. So I thought that was quite cool. And again, the fact, you're right, the rolling snowball is a perfect analogy. The fact that he's he's way more scary than... <laughs> than any of them could have led on. I think now's a good time to talk about the villain designs because what I love so much about the original was obviously there's the whole meta interpretation of the superhero origin story and we sort of touched into that. that They're now doubling down on that with the the canon multiverse timeline situation. 
Um, but I love the, the the almost the postmodern variations of these villains, even within the main universe that we're following in the original film. You got the um, like a giant mutant green goblin. You got mm. a gender bent Doc Ock, for example, and obviously Fisk has that. His visual design is hilarious and intimidating. He's kind of just this hulking square block yeah. <laughs> that's walking around. Um, but I love that they took that to the next level in this film. Obviously, you see different variations of all the villains. Uh, we're just going to keep calling it the Citadel. <laughs> this is the best way to describe it. Um, but I particularly love the Renaissance Vulture. I thought that was so cool, the way they... Not Childish Gambino's Prowler. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, I will say, I didn't mind a lot of the references, quote-unquote, in this film, but the live-action stuff was just too much for me. Even the, uh, like, that was funny, him being in it. But when it, like, cut to the close-up of Andrew Garfield, I was like, okay, come on, guys. This is so distracting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just felt like that was the big point. That Citadel one just felt like it was 25 minutes of, like, just, oh, look, there's all, look how many Easter eggs we can get in here. It's a typical, and then, you know, we often we've poked fun at now and critiqued MCU films for the mm. exact same line of behaviour. So, I sit here, and I'm watching it, and I'm going, yeah, cool, that's, oh, that's, I'm sure someone in here is enjoying this, but I'm looking at this going, yep, cool, oh, that's, literally when Childish Gambino popped mm. up on the screen, I was like, yep, yep, he's the live action mm. one from the MCU films that we will get to eventually, I'm sure, it'll probably be in the next one, or whatever, and I just, I don't care. Yeah. One story, I mean, cut that 10, 15 minutes out. Well, the thing is, a lot of that is integrated into the story in the sense that it is a multiverse film. And if you didn't have enough of that, then people yeah. would say, like Doctor Strange, like, oh, well, it was just bland and boring. Why was it a multiverse film if you didn't see enough of it's these very fair. variations? So you, that's where you have to find the right balance. And I'm with you in the sense that I think there are definitely moments when they went way too far with it. Like I said, the live action Andrew Garfield was just, like, ridiculous. Like, I liked the, like, the Tobey Maguire thing was, like, in the corner of the frame. They never zoomed into it. I was like, okay, that's makes a bit more sense to me. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was a Tom Holland thing in there. I didn't even see it. But apparently, he was in there somewhere. <laughs> so, see, I like that, where it's, like, it's not immediately obvious. I like the one where, um, I think it's Genki's playing Spider-Man, Spider-Man PS5. And it's like, that's clever, because it's not quite in the center of the frame. But it's in there. Yeah, and it makes sense for like that universe, I suppose, that they made video games on that, on the hero. I mean, that's the opening thing of the original Spider Verse is he does Christmas carols and he's famous and all of that stuff. So all of that stuff makes sense. But you're right, there's a there is a limit and a balance to the amount of references you would get in there. To be fair, I read so many complaints about the references going in that I was actually surprised that there weren't as many as I thought there were going to be. Like people thought there were just too many. Yeah, like I read so much of that before going into the movie. It's clearly not existed on the letterbox score. If people were unhappy about it. <laughs> well, oh. I, like I said, I think the letterbox score goes back to it's the everything everywhere crowd from last year, where people just love that exhilarating, overly stimulating multiverse adventure. And it's the only reason those two films have the same score. Really, oh, one of them's got emotional resonance for days, though, and has genuine. I think. I think the original creativity and everything everywhere is, mm. is indisputable, though. Yeah. I think. There's definitely a, more originality, yeah, sure. Yeah, whereas this is Easter eggs galore. This is an Easter hunt. This should have been played at Easter. <laughs> an Easter hunt. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. 
I, so, I think mm. the end, there are big things, but sorry, you were saying um, about the Citadel. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what was I talking about? Like the character designs yeah. in particular? Yeah. Which are amazing. This, yeah. this film's animation is indisputably great. I mean, there are amazing designs in there. I love the little Lego scene where it's like, <laughs> oh, you're at one of our most uh, prized. See, that's their little lines like that when Oscar Isaac's um, O'Hara Spider-Man is like, oh, you're one of our most valued members. And you sort of sit there and go, but there's a metropolis of you guys. Mm. Like, at that point, you were thinking, oh, is Lego Spider-Man a part of this elite task force? <laughs> it's a misdirect. Um, well, he's definitely a part of the task force, oh, so God. to speak. It's, but it's he's... I mean, the that, army, that, not a task force. Well, that could, an army. Well, I'm just saying what you said. <laughs> yeah. but, but speaking to that, it's like, well, does, maybe that is insinuating that, that Spider-Man, perhaps he just says what he needs to say to control these troops. That every one of his Spider-Men yeah. are the Spider-Man. I think that might be more of a character moment than anything else. Yeah. I think you'd figure it out if you're all at this metropolis of tens of thousands of you just being like, yeah, this is an elite task force. <laughs> We're all a part of... But well, look, Again, for me, it just simply goes back to we need to isolate Miles. We need to put the entire world against him and this idea of you do not belong in the position that you are. And that's part of Miles's uh, coming of age story is mm. proving that no, I can be, and that the canon isn't written. I mean, this literally is Back to the Future Part Two. They made two and three together, split them in half for the movie release. The Have co- they already made the second part for this? That's what I've been saying. They made yeah. they split it up after the fact. They basically made the movie. Oh. And then they split it. It's like, oh, it's too big. We need to make it part one and part two. So and we'll get the second one next I think, year, I think it's in several months. I don't think it's that long of a wait. Really? Yeah. That's so wild. How does that work from an award season point of view? Do you- what do you mean? Well, they're different movies. I'm just saying, like, narratively... I mean, it's exactly the same as Back to the Future. But, like, which like for, like, Best Animation, what if they both get nominated? You know what well, I mean? Well, no. It, I mean, it's still going to come out next year. That's what I was saying. Yeah, but I mean, hey, they could be. You imagine if they? I were. I wonder if that's ever happened before. If there's if two, I doubt it, because there were only like four yeah, sequels ever the made. Future, that got two and three came out, eighty seven, eighty nine. I think it was eighty nine and then nineteen ninety. Oh, okay. but a year apart. Yeah, but even like where the story ends with our protagonist, yeah, e- either it's Miles or or Marty McFly trapped in the wrong dimension slash timeline, their father figure at the risk of death. The duck's alive. <laughs> he's in the old west. Yeah, it's like, true. It's like it's very similar to me. Back yeah. to the Future Part Two, and then this film. But this is the other thing I want to stress for people who are very. I mean, are you disappointed in the fact that the film doesn't really end? That we have to go. No, okay. no. My my critiques of the film were not with the right. I thought the last ten minutes was like on sprint. Like right. On, like the the whole Gwen, she gets her moment with her dad, and then it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to assemble this task force, and we have two or three characters in there where we don't really know. Like, I get why Jake Johnson would be on Miles' yeah. side. He gets a moment with him being like, oh, I want you to be... I had kids because of you. Cause yeah, you that's were a great moment. It's a great moment. Yeah. So he's warranted. But it's like... Spider-Punk's in there. He and dro- he he he's also the warranted because he's got that rebellious <laughs> aspect. But it's like Spider-Penny doesn't really make any sense. She has a moment where she, last we saw her, he was she was taking the side apart from... Hmm. Um, you could argue the AI 
spider the vr spider girl she at least has like a glance that kind of shows mm. remorse so maybe yeah but like i said noir ham and and penny don't get any moments to prove why they would suddenly take miles aside for right any reason other than just like the the morality just, of it i suppose but we don't see they don't get a moment to even have that conflict of morality so mm. i that's what I'm saying. I feel like the la- like for a movie that's two hours and twenty minutes, those little things like setting up your second film, mm. that's important. And to be honest, I'm gonna go with what Eng- how Endgame goes from sorry Infinity War goes into Endgame. Mm. They're really well paced, part one, part two, like, and I'm I, I'm the last person who's gonna be like yeah MCU <laughs> films are great, but Infinity War sets everything up for Endgame really really well hmm. really well Immacul- like immaculately it's perfectly planned out whereas this I don't know some of it just didn't f- some of it felt like really rushed like we could have actually benefited from an extra 10 minutes of she goes around and tries to convince them or at least have a speech where she convinces all of these characters right. to help Miles like she needs almost like that one more moment and it is the Gwen film so hmm. Surely she could have a Gwen moment. We we can see the the Prowler reveal of Miles's dark Prowler alter ego, and that's cool. And mm. he has a moment where he's about to activate his electrical powers to sort of fight in that situation, mm. which will happen in the early parts of of the next film. But I think we needed one more rallying cry, not an end of montage that right. brings all of those characters. Why do they take Miles's side? Yeah, well, I guess I look at it, the the VR girl is the example of, I guess when we see her in the moment when she sees 2099 trying to claw into the, you know, to grab Miles, that that's almost like the moment of, oh, God, like, he really is, we aren't the good guys. It's when Miles says, you know, I thought we were the good guys. And I guess you, I, you could argue that maybe all the characters that are with Gwen at the end all took that speech to heart, which... It's not. I don't think it's a very compelling argument. No, but I think that's the only one you could probably make. It, most of it, yeah. I mean, they still chase him for the next twenty minutes after that. So. No, well, that's when he disappears. When he when he's about to be sent home to the to the forty two universe, not the right one. That's oh, so when he says stuff from, when he's in the pod. Yeah, it's he, right as he disappears and sent to what he thinks is his home. When he says, "I thought we were the good guys," that's the last beat before he disappears. He says that through the thing? Yeah. I feel like he said that before then. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah, you are right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's when it was. Maybe. I'm going to... Because I feel like that's when VR Girl... I'm just, just going to call her now as VR Girl. She's VR Spider-Man. That's when she has her um, change of heart. Oh, I thought she moment. had the change of heart because, like you said, O'Hara is, like, ripping at the pod and this beast. Yeah, form. Exa- exactly. She has like a That's moment. all the same But I don't think scene. there's a dialogue exchange in that moment, is there? It's well, just... it's not It's not an exchange, but he sa- he says that right before he disappears, I'm pretty sure. Because yeah, I feel like he said it earlier than that, but you're, you might, you Maybe probably he are did. right. That, that's how I remember interpreting that scene. He has a moment where he looks menacing and evil, but yes. most of the characters dismiss that behavior really they actually well i think take... most but those several that are with gwen now are probably the ones that, that didn't that cut if we just need a cutaway shot something that buys into why that group decides apart from yeah. i can buy into spider punk being like i mean he was like stuff this i'm out like 
he, we see against the democracy and <laughs> not democracy against um, the the power. And he has every reason to back Miles because he saw Miles saving people and yeah. he agrees with that consensus. And Coulier is so cool. Oh, this. he's great. He's <laughs> so funny in that role. Um, <laughs> I just, for me, it was, it, yeah, it, they were the big things I, I kind of took away that left me a little bit, yeah, like, and like, they might get remedied, but we have to hold uh, such a big multiversal film in the same regard as as like you said i mean it's even in the conversation with something like back to the future but i would put it against what was it like with infinity war but i guess Mm. infinity war does have a lot of build so it has a lot of um prior context coming into the film Mm. which is why maybe it's allowed to have a pacing whereas we have to almost put character backstories in this and but yeah, well, I found in this film that actually they were comedically throwing away a lot of the backstories, at least in the early stages. You look at the original film, it's like they throw the comic book on the thing. All right, let's do that one more time, and they do the backstory. And this one, it felt like they were setting that up and then kind of mm. bathos the joke, where it's like, ah, oh, we, don't, we, we don't need it. We know the origin yeah. story. We don't need it anymore. Yeah. Which is almost kind of meta in the fact that most Spider, Spider-Man properties nowadays, you know, the, the Insomniac video games and even the... Tom Holland, Spider-Man, they just omit the origin story. They don't need it anymore. And that's what was so, that was what was so fun about the original, which I will give you credit for. So you obviously prefer the original over yeah, I love the original. this one. I, I think it makes perfect sense in the sense that the original was a much cleaner, streamlined narrative. Mm-hmm. And that, it, you're right, 40 minutes shorter. That's a lot, that's a lot of time, 40 minutes. So I definitely understand. And, and I'm pretty sure I gave both films the same rating on Letterboxd because... I'm at. If you ask me which one I think is better, I'm at that conflict where I understand the argument that the original was a more streamlined, completed story, mm-hmm. this coming of age story of Miles, and and it is a smaller scale, which I think for a lot of people was a better thing. Um, but for this, I was just in such awe at the the energy of it all, and just the the animation style, and just the amount of story that's happening i I was just completely enthralled by the whole adventure i mean this film would never get a failing grade for me because of the animation style the uniqueness and the the imagination and creativity that's gone involved with it um i just can't look past things like i feel like it it does take away from characters that had minor arcs or were very likable in the first one and they're either put to the side or they don't even get time at all and there's a whole lot of things like we said Mm having Billy Crystal and, and Nick Cage's voices not involved in it, that doesn't mean it's the be-all and end-all, but the fact that they're kind of removed from the plot entirely, um, you know, I think that that's a big... Especially when you have a character that's missing all of those friends he made mm. so much that they're not even remotely involved in this plot, um, apart from Peter B. Parker, and, and to be honest... A, he he gets oh and Gwen uh, and well. Gwen well I mean they're they're like I said they're parallel part like they're they're great that they're put to the front they should be put to the front mm. but those other four ensemble characters should have at least had some form of plot or part or we should have had some more conflicted scenes I mean Jake Johnson's character is kind of just Peter B Parker's so spineless in this film like he just agrees with the I I just don't buy into it myself. Mm. Well, look, I'll, I'll say, when I walked out of cinema, I wasn't walking out thinking, like, oh, I really needed more Spider-Ham in that film. Like, in terms of the reoccurring <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it's more characters. about the reoccurring characters. It's just paying off the ending of this film. I mean, like I said, having those characters coming together. I don't really like 
Oscar Isaac's villain, I think. Mm. And I don't like I said I didn't like the Cita- the Citadel depiction. Right. I thought having this elite controlling task force, this almost uh, League of Shadows Spider or League of Spider Men, mm. um, would have been a better way to go about it. We had a character lure you in with their ideologies, like the Ra's al Ghul in, in Batman Begins, and then revealing that more uh, standoffish nature. Right. Um, or those more sinister aspects would have been cool. And having a couple of those characters in that elite task force defecting and then us just crossing universes, which the second film is probably going to jump to a lot of universes. I just think it's going to jump to less because I feel like the story's starting to focus and hone in more on, on like well, the specific changes of, of Miles' dad being a threat, Spot being a threat. But the whole point is, is Spot needs to move from place to place doesn't he to yeah destroy get the generators and get more powerful so, yeah that could be like a sequence or two where and we get a bunch of universes in there but i feel like the story is starting to hone in and, and become more focused on here are the particular mm. things we need to so focus you think on. we're just going to move between the two earths potentially two miles earths i mean i mostly. i imagine like we said that they're very creative people involved in this in these films so you're probably right that we will get a lot more than that um i just feel like in terms of like narrative thrust i feel like we are sort of the missile is honing in on the final mm. clip. Well, how long do you think the next film's going to spend in this dark universe? I think if I look to my Back to the Future analogy... It's the first act, isn't it? You got the first act, yeah, and then and then obviously the second and third acts in the Western setting. So it's like so, the, ja- it's the Jabba Palace in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Because that's another one in terms of Star Wars episodes five and six where they, they weren't... They weren't uh, block shot or anything. But, very close. But, you know, the narrative clearly is going to conclude mm. not in Empire Strikes Back. They were the written, afterwards. I'm pretty sure, together, though. Okay, probably, yeah. Or written very closely. I mean, they knew exactly what was going to happen to Han and how yes, they were going to get exactly. it. So that first, as particularly, maybe not the rest of the film, but that first act in Return of the Jedi just feels like that was written as like almost like the epilogue to Empire. Like right, we just got to clean up all these threads, yeah, and then we could start the proper the final, final movie. Yeah, <laughs> the second act. Because I feel like that's what's going to happen. It will be the first if the next film's ninety minutes long. The first thirties in the dark world. Yeah, and then they're out of there, and then you have that that final push where you. I guess you have to have a, a fight between O'Hara and Morales, and then Spot. Yeah, right. That would probably be the way to do it. That'd be my pitch. I well, mean, we'll be, we'll be here like, in a year from now. Like I feel like O'Hara, that's the kind of character you have to try and redeem as opposed to defeat. And he becomes like a big group thing at the end where yeah. a, a bunch of spider people have to fight the spot. Yeah. It is weird that in all of the, the we don't get an evil Spider-Man. <laughs> well, I think O'Hara is kind of really the, close. the, yeah, the morally ambiguous one. The yeah. film we haven't talked about yet, I think we, we'll sneak it in. Is you haven't talked about um, Miles's like family much at all. There's a lot of scenes between him and his dad and him and his mum, and I think it's all great setup for the end when you realise like oh god like his dad's, his dad's on the pathway of death. I honestly thought his um uncle was going to be his dad in this alternative timeline. That's like, kind of what it feels like. Yeah. It feels like he's like the father figure. Yeah. So to speak. Um. Yeah. Uncle Aaron. <laughs> Uncle Aaron. Daddy Aaron. Daddy Aaron. He's now Daddy Aaron. Um, That's it. (laughs) No, you're you're right. There are a lot of... um, This is a very, like, 
the two main threads, obviously with Gwen's timeline and, and Miles' one, is they're trying to both do their basically their coming out stories mm. for, for Spider-Man and and obviously we see Gwen sort of come to its conclusion in this film, which is checkpoint makes sense. Mm. Um, but Miles has obviously got multiple opportunities. I I think it's... And he's obviously struggling with that sort of work-life balance, which we haven't really seen too much in any previous Spider-Man properties. Like, um, they're all pretty... Most of their Spider... Mm. The Spider-Men we've seen are bit... supported by their family members quite a lot. Yeah, well, I think that the MCU, that was a lot of people's big complaints about those films. Is there weren't enough um, complications or consequences for skirting the Peter Path. Peter Parker, like Peter Parker, my God, mm. um, and Maguire's one's already too kind of too old to. Well, I I feel like Spider Man Two really nails it. If you rewatch those films, in terms of him trying to balance his college work life, looking after Aunt May, who's potentially losing the house, and then you know his responsibilities to Doc Ock from a mm. scientist standpoint, like that's all there in Spider Man Two. I mean, that's why people love that film so much, is because that is the closest it gets to nailing the dichotomy and the duality of, of the rosiest and just being unable to do either very mm. well. Um, and I think this one does a pretty good job with Miles. And so he obviously he's, he's a late to the counselor meeting. He's late to the dad's um, promotion, promotion party. party. So I, I think it's doing quite well there. And, and again, the, the idea of him getting grounded is <laughs> quite humorous. It, it but, often is played for humor. Yes. Um, which I think, I like I like that these films are quite lighthearted and they're quite mm. quippy. It would have been nice to see a little bit more heavy-handed emotion. We might get it in the next film, but sometimes it felt like these films were almost being too bright, and cheerful, and quippy that they didn't have as much levity in some moments. Okay, yeah. Um, the f- only time we get one where it's, it gets a little bit more somber and a little bit more chill is that I- interaction between Gwen and Miles when they're upside down on the building yeah. having that conversation. Which is kind of cool. Great blocking. It is great blocking, <laughs> and it's. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more. Almost like the the back and forth between the mum and the the mum gets down a little bit more. There's a beautiful interaction where she's talking about mm. you going out and trying to f- figure out what is going on here, yeah. and then letting me know. Ungrounded. The dad thing. is just comedic in this film, but maybe that's to reduct from the first film when he's incredibly serious and to kind of find that balance. But he's. Well, solely in comedic roles in this. I don't know, because after that initial fight with the spot, the two of them, and obviously he's talking to Spider-Man, he doesn't yeah. realise he's talking to his ta- son. That's a pretty interesting... I think that's an interesting conversation. Still kind of comedic, though, but that's more from Miles' There, there are comedic delivery. elements, but it is a... I think the conversation is, you know, he's trying to... He just doesn't understand his son. Mm. And he thinks he's so smart, but he also makes such dumb decisions. And I, I actually do love the comment. I was meant to make this earlier, but I love... Like I said, the other parallel to everything everywhere I think this film has is that it's really the kind of film that only today's audiences could really, um, ex- not accept, but like interpolate <laughs> sure. without their heads completely exploding. And then even then, I feel like there will be some people's heads exploding. Um, but I love the comment that Miles makes in the counselor college meeting about wanting to study quantum physics. Mm-hmm. And because of his understanding of the multiverse uh, that has come from the previous film and I love that the, the refreshing reminder, like, oh yeah, this is incredibly scientific and nerdy subject matter that mm. now, like, just families and young children can go to the movies and enjoy because we're at that age now where audiences kind of 
just understand what a multiverse is. Or at least are willing to just, yeah, because we've had so many multiverse films in the last. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Do you have anything else you would like to add? Um, I'm good. I'm happy to jump straight into my highlight scene, which kind of skirts around between all the different animation styles. And mm-hmm. I think this film um, is absolutely leaps and bounds ahead of the first film in terms of the amalgamation of animation styles and we we talked about films earlier like wolf walkers which is very experimental and visual um mm-hmm. expressive i should say with its animation style and i know a lot of like uh, mitchell's and the machines i know that was a sony animation as well but like them really ab- abducting the different animation styles kind of merging together yeah so i love all the fight scenes that really utilize that where you've got you know, the Indian Spider-Man and then Spider-Punk all coming in. They're all animated very differently, um, especially Punk Rock has, like, kind of the, the album cover, you know, you... you cr- very poppy. Poppy, and you cut the words out of the newspaper and re rearrange them mm-hmm. and just, like, that 90s punk attitude. But my favourite has to be the Gwen Stacy watercoloured world, which is just so... I, my understanding is that that's sort of reflecting a lot of the comic book um, front pages of the Gwen Stacy or Spider-Woman uh, uh, comic books. They were all very uh, wet, sort of um, watercolored, dripping mm. effect. And I love that, especially in the conversation she has with her dad, especially the one towards the end. I mean, that would probably be my highlight scene. Because it is like this big, deep, meaningful conversation they're having about him finally accepting his daughter's role in you know, the Peter Parker he thinks that she killed mm. and the fact that she is a vigilante and for her, this is proof that the canon can be broken. Um, that obviously leads on to what the next film is going to be about. But just the fact that from like every shot, the environment behind them is just constantly changing and deteriorating and almost collapsing on itself. And I just love that the environmental storytelling from like shot to shot is evolving and changing based on the flow of their argument. So I, I just thought all those sequences were just phenomenal. Yeah. How about you? What's your highlight scene, Zeke? Um, hmm. I mean, there's quite a few in there. I, I, I do think the first uh, sort of conflict between when we introduce the spot as this comedic character, it is mm. quite a funny sequence um, that I, I did quite enjoy. I think that that was uh, probably up there with one of my, my favourite sequences in the film. I think... The scene probably between Gwen and Miles, like I said, where it's the upside down shot, um, where they're just having a big fat DNM. It's really nice. Um, she sort of refers to, you know, that's the first instance of where she's alluding to this this canon event where she goes, "Oh, mm. Gwen!" Every time they fall in love with Spider Man, and um, that doesn't end well yep. for um, either party. Um, so we get a, an illusion of that uh, sort of uh, canonical event, and yeah, probably the the fight with the uh, Leonardo da Vinci vulture. Is, yeah, is oh, it's fun. so good. Um, That's up there for me as well, because again, just that merging of animation styles, like it's so unique, and I love when he kind of comes in and out of his own universe, and just how what's the color? And it's not gray necessarily. It's like a sepia. Yeah, sepia. It's definitely more monochromatic than Gwen, Gwen's world. So I, I just love... It's so brilliant the way they merge. And you can get away with that in animation to an extent. With live action, you kind of can't. Mm. And everything everywhere kind of goes out of its way to really depict all these different weird kooky universes. But in terms of merging 
the visual mm. styles together. You can't do it like you can in an anime. We need film. a sausage hand Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a variation of Spider Ham. <laughs> this film needed more Spider Ham. Oh, goodness. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking of cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? There's a few interesting things coming out. you got the third Creed coming to Prime this week. you got Avatar The Way of Water finally coming to Disney+. Plus. Mm. Took their time with that one, but I, I see why. Made, what, $3 billion mm. <laughs> at the box office? you got David Harbour's Violent Night coming to Binge. You excited to see this one? Sure. Yeah. I actually have not heard of Violent Night. What's, what's, what's oh, it? it's David Harbour's like Santa Claus, but he beats people up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we talked about that last yeah. year. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. But I'll probably wait until Christmas again to watch that, probably. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a bit out of season now. Yeah. But it is what it is. Also coming to binge, you got DC League of Super Pets and the premiere episode of The Idol, the new show from Sam Levison and The Weeknd. Sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, it looks weird. <laughs> It's, it's getting bad reviews, and I was waiting for this Sam Levison shoe to drop, because I I think the narrative on him as a creative has flipped is, is so that, hard. Is in that last... um, Euphoria guy? Euphoria, um, Malcolm and Marie. <laughs> yeah, it's I. So you telling me we can't just see people screaming at each other for an hour and a half? <laughs> this this uh, the idol it just seems very excessive in all the all the bad reasons that people are sort of icky on Euphoria as of late. Yeah. And oh, so people I, don't like flip- Euphoria anymore? Is that Sorry? Is that what's happened? People don't like Euphoria Well, like, I know for me personally, it's just like, it's so it's such a well-made show from some aspects, but like, it's just so gratuitous in so many other ways that it's like almost unbearable to watch. And like, he, the stories that have come out about him as a creative on set directing and like, forcing people into nudity like all of this stuff that's like kind of come out and i don't want to go too deep into it. i'm not fully up to date on it but there's stuff you can read about very potentially exploitative person right the um, you know flip from bojack season five sort of uh, character potentially like uh, they're gonna get uh, rami malik to play (laughs) (laughs) to play him in the biopic where it gets cancelled yeah we shall see uh, coming to Netflix, you got the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary about his multifaceted life. He really has had a multifaceted life, actually. Yeah, I mean, when you think once upon a time, his sort of his breakout role was in that Pumping Iron documentary. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, it yeah. was. It yeah. was like a document, you know, one of the oldest and kind of strangely regarded, well-regarded documentaries in Pumping Iron, you know, where they're talking about bodybuilding in like the 70s and, mm. you know was one of the platforms to launch him into being the terminator yeah well there you go from that and the terminator to to, government of governor of california yeah (laughs) to that daycare film he's in what's the film he's in playgroup or what's it called can't remember he's always kindergarten cop that's it oh okay there you go very nice yeah (laughs) jingle all the way i can't forget about that masterpiece we love Jingle All The Way on the show. Uh, coming to Apple TV+, Plus, we've got the premiere episodes, I think the first three episodes, of The Crowded Room, a miniseries in which Tom Holland is arrested for a shocking crime and Amanda Seyfried is the unlikely investigator who must solve the actual mystery. The, the bloody stunt casting right there, I tell you that much. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> can't wait for Tom Holland to act the exact same in something. 
have you seen him in Cherry? No, but you didn't he, really like Cherry. No, I didn't like up. Cherry, but he he acted his little heart out in that film. That's all. He tried his little best. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just do not think Tom Holland's a very good actor, but that's my opinion. No, that's fair. Um, I just he, he needs to be in more stuff for us to. He can't just play Spider Man and Nathan Drake. But he played like, Spider. Play something else. He please. was just Tom Holland in both those films. Well, yeah. Well, that's it. Like that's our perception of Tom Holland. Yeah. Like I will say, he tried in Cherry. I I say it in a jokingly disparaging way. Mm. His little heart out, but <laughs> it just feels so appropriate to say it like that. This is exactly how I felt watching the movie. But he did try. He so tried. That's what matters. People should watch it and make up their own mind. Uh, coming to cinemas, we have to catch a killer, which sees uh, Shawnee Woodley. Shawnee Wood, uh, Woodley? Sh- um, Sh- Shiloh Shil- Woodley. Woodley. Ah, Shiloh okay. Woodley. Got you. And Ben Mendo sees a troubled police officer recruited by the FBI's chief investigator to help profile and track down a murderer. Ben Mendo. Ben Mendo. <laughs> I wonder if Ben Mendelsohn likes being called Ben Mendo. <laughs> call him Ben Mendelsohn instead. Yeah. And- no, if I ever met him, I'd be like, oh, Ben Mendo, how you doing? He'd be like, yeah, no. Nah. That would be the end of our relationship. <laughs> that would be it. He'd shake your hand and then throw you through the wall. <laughs> yeah. Probably good. Uh, also coming to cinemas, you have the unlikely pil- pilgrimage, I know how to say words, of Harold Fry, and it's based on the Rachel Joyce novel. Sees the titular character, a man in his 60s, go on a 450-mile walk to reach his old friend. Oh, that just sounds so sweet. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Harris goes to... Wherever 450 miles is away from yes. <laughs> from where he is. And finally, Event Cinemas is previewing one fine morning. They're actually previewing this week, 2 p.m. on Monday the 5th. Whoops. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> you need to Shoot. enter the Miles Morales time machine to, yeah. <laughs> to watch this one. To go back to 1885. I think it is playing later this week, I think, as well. Not 100% sure, but it does star... Lee, uh, Psyduke, Psydox. I've never had to pronounce that name out loud before. Sado, Sado. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen her everywhere. She plays a single mother raising an eight-year-old daughter and struggling to take care of her diseased father. I didn't want to clarify when I said deceased father. It was just the most economical way to say that sentence. Yes. <laughs> deceased father. Oh goodness. But yeah. That's, well, uh, what's coming to cinemas and streaming this past week? Thank next you next week, excuse me. Thank you for that one, Jake. Time to move into what we're going to be covering next week on the show. It is mm. a director's corner. Yes. And obviously, you know, we're well past now our counter through the decade. So, Jake, who's the director we've decided and what are we watching? Well, we thought we'd do a, a slightly more contemporary director <laughs> than some of the last couple we've yes. covered. Um, next week on the show, we're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Some more work. All I got is weekends. Isn't that when you sit on other dudes' faces? 
Have you ever seen a one legged dog? Have a beer with me? <laughs> one beer. Can you have a daughter? Oh, my daughter, she don't like me very much. You should call her. What do you want from me? I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. Two words, three, match. Bring it. You know, with a little luck, this could be my ticket back on top. Tell me, friend, can you ask for aging wrestler struggles to move on from his life in the ring there you go now that i i economicalized the sentence short as someone who hasn't seen the film so that's just me guessing and i love this film but it's crazy it's taken this long to get to aronofsky but yeah i'll get to catch the whale in the next week and you can catch the wrestler yes that's it um well some of the other we've both seen black i'm gonna maybe have to do both in this week black swan's pretty incredible yeah so that's I've, a good one to catch i've seen pie it's a little tricky it's kind of like watching christopher nolan's following yeah it's just but it is interesting it's interesting it's like mark mongols is in it as well and i think they're remastering in 4k this year oh. i think uh, i think a24 are doing it actually could be wrong about that very strange very exciting but yeah aronofsky He's a, he's a very controversial director. There'll be a lot to talk about, but I'm excited to watch The Wrestler. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jay. And we'll catch you next week with Aronofsky's The Wrestler. <laughs>